Well, good morning, everyone. So good to have all of you at all of our churches, Blunstown, Chipley, and Mariana. Today, we are in the third week of our conversation entitled The Last King. But one thing before we jump into today's conversation, every fourth Sunday of the month, what we're doing is we're giving you the opportunity to go above and beyond to show our communities that we are for them, to help them understand that God is for them. And what we're calling this is $4 for others. Now, for most of you, when you hear $4 for others, you go, why is that? Because $4 is not a whole lot for most people. It's like a cup of coffee that you might have to give up once a week or something. But if every person who attends all of our churches, if they gave at least $4 today, as I've told you before, you'd raise over $5,000 to bless our communities. And together, when you really think about it, it just adds up to be a great blessing for the people in our community. So each month, what we're doing with these gifts that we give on the fourth Sunday is we give them to a group of people or an organization in our community in order to bless them. It's an organization or a group of people who serves our community on a regular basis, but this is just our way of saying thank you and blessing them. So every dollar you give at your campus, so Blunstown, Chipley, Mariana, whatever you give on your campus, it's going to go back into your community. So here's where your $4 is going to go this month. We're going to be giving it to the fire departments in our communities this month. So here's how you give. When you came in today, there was an envelope on your seat whenever you entered the auditorium. If you didn't find that envelope, uh, you're probably sitting on that envelope, but you can take it out now. And here's what you do. You can put money in the envelope and then you can drop it in the giving boxes on your way out. Or you can scan the QR code that is on that envelope and it will take you to our app and you can give to the four fund there as well. And if you don't know how to do the QR code, just take your phone, go to the, the camera on it and it'll take it and you can just tap on it. It'll open it up, right? So go ahead and uh, do that right now. Uh, you go ahead and put your $4 in. I had to tell a friend of mine last month, we were talking about it, and uh, he said, well, I put my $4 in. I said, did your wife do the same thing? And he goes, no, it was just $4. I said, no, no, you're cheapy. You know what I mean? Give, give, you're supposed to be giving $4 for you and your, I mean, each. So that's $8. I told him this month he had to double it to make up. But anyhow, but anyhow, <clears throat> but it was a friend of mine, so I could talk like that, right? But go ahead and do that right now. And, and while you're doing that, I just want to say, hey, thank you so much for helping us show people in our community that God is for them by the way that we are for them them because for far too long, we just feel like the church has been known for what it's against. We want our communities to know what our church is for, who and what we're for, and that's for them. So I cannot wait to celebrate with you in two weeks uh, what God does through this whole process. So uh, go ahead and do that. Be prepared. And then go ahead and take out your talk notes and your Bibles, and let's get ready for the third part in our conversation, the last king. Now, to begin our conversation today, I want you to consider this question. Here's the question. When you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? When you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? I think for most of us, it's terms like savior, forgiver, and friend. And while these terms are very true, and they are very true descriptions of Jesus, and they're very important descriptions of Jesus as well, there are some other terms that are descriptions of Jesus that we don't use very often when it comes or mention much when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. And those are terms such as Messiah, Christ, or Lord. And, and while it is very important for us to be aware of the terms and understand Savior, Forgiver, and Friend, it's just as important and true that we understand Messiah, Christ, and Lord. And here's why. Because whenever we recognize Jesus as our Messiah, our Christ, and Lord, what we're doing is we're acknowledging Jesus as our King. And whenever we acknowledge Jesus as our king, it absolutely requires something more and something different from us than just believing in Jesus. 
Now, here's why this is so important for us. Because see, for most of us, what we want is we want all the benefits of being part of the kingdom of God. We want all of that. We want the benefits of savior, forgiver, and friend. But the problem is, is we want all of those benefits of the kingdom of God without recognizing the king of that kingdom. And so we want all that Jesus has to offer as savior, forgiver, and friend, but then we don't want to recognize Jesus is our king because as we said before, it's one thing to believe in someone. It's another thing to make the commitment to surrender and submit and say, I'm going to follow you no matter what you ask or no matter where you lead. And that difference is so important for us to recognize or essential to recognize because many of us who call ourselves Christians, what we've done is we've just reduced our relationship with Jesus down to just believing We have forgotten what it really means to follow Jesus as our king. You see, Jesus' invitation to us when he said, hey, listen, here's who I am, and and he gives us an invitation to begin to discover who he is and what he says, it was never simply just an invitation to believe in him. It was also an invitation to come follow me. And that's why the New Testament writers refer to Jesus, and I've shared this for the past couple of weeks because I want you to understand the importance of this is they refer to Jesus as Savior 157 times, but they refer to him as Lord over 700 times because they understood that Jesus is the king who came to reverse the order of everything. And what that means is this, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and it is not turning your life upside down, And if you can just go with the culture and you feel like, oh, this is what it means to follow Jesus. No, Jesus is the king who came to reverse the order of everything. Now, while most of us would not use the term to describe Jesus as king, if you'd asked a first century Jewish person what came to mind whenever they thought about Jesus, they would have immediately mentioned, oh, well, he's king. And here's why. Because they believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Or another word for Messiah is king. They believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah king, the king of the Jewish people. And they were right. He was. But their expectations for who or what he would do when he became the king, they were so wrong. See, they assumed that their king would arrive, this Messiah would arrive, he'd overthrow the Roman rule, he'd kick out the Roman occupation, and he would establish this earthly kingdom that would elevate the Israelites back to their glory days. And so much of this anticipation of a Messiah or a king is really what drove much of the excitement that you see around Jesus as people began to follow him. In fact, whenever Jesus invited people, he says, I want you to come follow me. They viewed it as an invitation to a new king who would establish a new kingdom and provide them with a new and better life right here, right now. In fact, it's part of the motivation for why some of his closest followers were following him. All their hopes were on their Jewish king setting up this earthly reign, and they wanted to make sure, hey, I gotta be in this circle. I gotta be close to the circle of power. So they could not understand that Jesus was a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. They did not grasp this fact that Jesus is the king who came to reverse the order of everything. And because Jesus came to reverse the order of everything, it's so essential for us to remember that while we get to choose whether we follow Jesus, we don't get to choose how we follow Jesus. 
See, while Jesus gives us the freedom to follow him or to choose a different path, here's the thing we have to understand. If you choose to follow Jesus, you are embracing Jesus as more than just savior, forgiver, and friend. You are embracing him as Messiah, as Christ, as Lord, as King. Now, fortunately, Jesus recognized that following him, it literally requires trust. And we all know that trust is built over time. So following Jesus, it involves a series of steps that he invites us to take with him as we build trust. In fact, we talked about these steps in the very first week when Jesus, and we use the story of Jesus inviting Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him. In fact, as we learned in that story, following Jesus, it happens in different stages. It starts, first of all, with information, an invitation to follow Jesus. It always starts with an invitation to listen and learn, to, to just study and understand who Jesus is and, and what he says. And so Peter and his fishing buddies, they, they sat and they listened to Jesus. And I'm sure that happened multiple times as Jesus was teaching by the seashore. And, and all these crowds would come and listen. And these guys would be coming in from their fishing all night. And they would be cleaning their nets. And they begin to hear that. And they begin to learn who Jesus was and the truth that he taught. And then Jesus, he asked them one day, because the crowd got so big that everybody couldn't hear him. And so he asked them to loan him the boat. And literally, that was a step in participating, they moved from a spectator to a participator in what Jesus was doing. And it was participating in something that was inconvenient to them. They had fished all night. They were ready to go home and, and get their nets cleaned up. They were ready to get their nets cleaned up and go home and get some rest. So it was a new step toward a deeper level of trust. And then Jesus, after he got in their boat, he invites them to take him fishing, which was totally unconventional and irrational because they fished at night when the water was cooler and the fish would come up and their nets could grab them. And, and this is now in the heat of the day. And so now he requests them to do something that's unconventional, irrational, and it required them to wrestle through this whole thing. Am I going to do what's logical or am I going to trust Jesus because of what I've seen and what I've experienced? And then finally, when they built that level of trust, Jesus asked them to leave their fishing business, to leave their nets and abandon everything for this brand new way of life and follow him. And then as we learned last week, the end game of following Jesus, his invitation to follow us, is he wants to help us develop a trust that expels all fear. He wants to help us develop a fearless faith. And so God desires that you learn to trust him so deeply that your faith, it overwhelms any fear that you might face in your life. And if you were not with us last two weeks, I really encourage you to go back and you watch or listen online or um, on our app if you want to do there. Now, here's the thing that you know. Trust is entirely relational because trust is the foundation of any healthy relationship. The deeper the trust the more personal the connection. Don't miss what I just said there. The deeper the trust, the more personal the connection. And that's the kind of relationship that our Heavenly Father wants to have with each of us. So today is what I want you to see is I want you to see how you can begin to experience that level of relationship. And then more importantly that, how that can begin to change you as we step further and further into our trust relationship and watch God do amazing things in our lives. So if you got your Bibles, uh, whether you got a digital or printed version, I'd encourage you to go to Mark chapter 10. That is the passage that we're going to be learning from today. And while you're looking up Mark chapter 10, let me give you just a little bit of background. 
So during the week that's leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus makes the decision to travel to Jerusalem. Now, along the way, there's this conversation that begins to unfold among Jesus and his disciples that are going to give us some insight into the people that we can become and how we should love when we follow our King Jesus. So Mark, who records Peter's account of this conversation, tells us what happens. And this is how it starts in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32 says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Now, don't miss this. They're on their way to Jerusalem. The disciples are astonished for a reason and the other group of people that are following along, they're afraid. Why are they that way? Because they know that the religious leaders want to take Jesus out. And so they're astonished that he would do this. The others were afraid that that might happen. They're like, why would we even go to Jerusalem? Because that's where all the religious people are. Now notice what happens next. It says, again, he took the 12 aside. Now I wanna pause right here and, re and want you to notice this word again, because this is very personal. It can become very personal to us in, a, in our lives as well. So again, meaning that he's done this more than one time. He's took these guys aside and he has the conversation that he's about to have with them. Now, here's the thing that I want you to understand. When we don't understand Jesus as king, the king that he is, the king that came to reverse the order of things, what oftentimes will happen is we have an agenda for Jesus. And we can't see what Jesus is really up to. We can't see what Jesus is really telling us because we have, we, we're so blinded by our own agenda. We're so spiritually just checked out from Jesus and we're into our own idea of what Jesus should do. And this is what has happened with these disciples. Jesus over and over again has said, this is, this is what I've come to do. This is what I've come to do. And, and they just don't get it. And so many times, I think Jesus is saying to you and I, hey, this is what I've come to do. This is what I've come to do in your life. This is what I've come to do in the world. But we just don't get it because we have our agenda for Jesus and the kind of king that he should be in our life, the kind of savior, the kind of friend, the kind of forgiver. So he says, again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said. And the son of man, referring to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Notice what's going to happen. They will condemn him to death. The very thing that they were astonished about, why he would go to Jerusalem, the other followers were afraid. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, when you read what Jesus just said, you understand that Jesus could not have been clear about what was about to happen to him in Jerusalem, could he? I mean, he can't be clearer than this. They're, they're gonna be handed over to the Gentiles, they're gonna mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Three days later, he's gonna rise. I mean, Jesus lays out very clearly that the religious leaders who have been trying to put an end to him for a while, well, guess what? They're gonna be successful this time. I mean, Jesus in this, he even unpacks the kind of suffering that he's going to experience. I mean, he uses the word flogging. He, he's going to be flogged. And they understood that Jesus is going to be whipped 39 times with this deadly whip. 
Most people didn't even survive a flogging. But he doesn't stop there. He says, oh, by the way, once they flog me, then they're going to kill me. And these disciples, they didn't under, they have to wonder how that they were going to kill him. Because they knew the Roman way of killing was crucifixion on a cross. Now, if all of that is not jarring enough, he says, oh, and by the way, don't worry about all this stuff. Because three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, I want you to think about the emotional intensity of this conversation. I mean, this is such a jarring, yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem. I know I'm going to die. But it's also a very vulnerable moment with Jesus. He, he's saying, guys, I'm fixed to go through the worst torture, turmoil that a person could ever go through. Jesus is letting his closest friends know how much pain and how much suffering he's about to endure before he dies in the most humili humil humiliating and excruciating way possible. And then he even mentions at the end, he goes, oh, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. So you would think or you would expect that his friends, after hearing this, would probably respond with all kind of questions and all kind of emotions, right? I mean, you would think, man, there's got to be some sadness. Like, Jesus, why are you going to do this? Jesus, why would, why would you want to go through this? Jesus, why? Some sadness and fear. Or maybe even some encouragement and support. Well, Jesus, we're with you. We're going to, you know, we're, we're here to support you, whatever you need. But at least some questions about three days later rising from the dead. I mean, if you had a friend tell you, hey, I'm fixing to go through some really hard stuff. I might even die from it, but don't worry about it because three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And if you had a friend tell you, I'm going to rise from the dead, you're going to start asking some questions like, what's this rise from the dead thing? Well, notice what Mark says happens in response to Jesus telling these disciples what is about to take place, all this suffering and difficulty and hardship that he's about to experience. Notice what he, he says in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Like, really? There's no, Jesus, we are so sorry to hear about the pain and the excruciating torture that you're about to go through. There's nothing about, we can't believe you're going to keep going to Jerusalem knowing that you're going to be crucified. There, there's none of this, like, Jesus, like, what do you mean three days from now you're going to rise from the dead? No. Their, their statement was more like, Hey, um, let's not dwell on that negative stuff right there. We got a favor to ask. Now, here's the thing. If you're a parent, you've had this moment, haven't you? Like, you know that you need to have this really personal, intimate conversation with your family. You need to have this really intimate talk, and you need to talk about some things that are going on in your family. And if you're a single parent, I mean, you're working out all the details to make sure that you can have this moment. If you're a couple, you've been probably talking to each other about it, saying how we're going to pull this off. And so at dinner, you're having this conversation, and you, it's just a very important moment in this important conversation. And you're talking, you're talking, you're laying out your heart, you're guiding your family, and you think that you have connected with your kids, right? Because they're so quiet. And they're leaning in. Some of them have their head propped on the table. And they're just looking at you. And you finish. And you look around the table. And you say, do any of you have any questions? 
And then there's this little silence. And you paused, and there's a little more silence. And then one of your children go, hmm, dad, you know you got something green in your teeth? <laughs> and then the other one goes, can we go play now? Like, have you ever had that moment happen in your life? Like, you just poured out your heart, and all you want to do is go play, or you want to say, dad, you got something in your teeth there. Or it's kind of like a person gets some bad news from the doctor, and so they bring all their adult children and grandchildren in, and they say, hey, the doctor said what I have is terminal. But here's the good news. I'm not going to die right away, right quickly. We're going to have some time together. But I just want you to know what we're going to be going through for the next period of time. But, but it is terminal. And I just want to share that with you. And before the person really even finishes their thing, one of the boys goes, hey, that tractor, I'd really like to have that tractor. You know, just, I love your tractor. Or one of the girls goes, that china, I'd love to have your china. You know, just, just saying. Well, that's kind of the moment that Jesus is experiencing right here. I mean, Jesus has just shared the stuff that's going to happen to him. And James and John are like, hey, we really hate to change the subject. But there's something, if this is going to happen, there's something we want. You know, we want you to do something for us. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. But what's more amazing is how Jesus replies because it shows us the character and the maturity of Jesus. And it's the kind of character and maturity that we should have the more we follow Jesus. Notice his reply. It's not anger. It's not like, I can't believe you're going off on that. I can't believe this is where this is going. Notice his reply, verse 36. Here's what he says. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Isn't that incredible? Even a servant's heart. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. It's kind of like the suffering, the torture, the crucifying, the rising from the dead. It just kind of went right over their heads. I mean, it's almost like they're saying, hey, we're not sure what the point of all this suffering talk is all about. I mean, you really shouldn't talk that way because we know you're the king that is going to deliver Israel from Roman oppression. I mean, after all, Jesus, that's why we're following you. And at some point, surely you're going to throw off this disguise and show everybody who you are and you're going to set up your kingdom on this earth. So as soon as you do that, we know you're going to have the big throne. You're going to have that really big throne. We know that. Everybody's going to know you're the king. But we would really like the little thrones right beside you, the one on your right and the one on your left. That's what they're asking. And the question is, how insensitive can you be? How insensitive can you be of somebody's suffering and pain that they're about to endure? But their understanding of power and their understanding of kings was based on what they had seen from earthly kings and earthly politics. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to be everybody else to the best seats in the kingdom. They wanted the power for their benefit. So Jesus looks back at them, and if you're following in the passage, you can kind of look and kind of scan over it. We're not read all the verses, but he explains to them, listen, you, you've missed the whole point. They don't understand what kind of king he is. And they, he, says, he says to them, he says, and you can't even handle what you're asking for. But here's what's interesting. 
while this conversation is going on over here with Jesus and these two disciples, you have the other 10 guys over here and they're kind of overhearing this conversation. And Mark tells us that something else happens. Notice verse 41. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Not indignant like, how could you be so insensitive to Jesus? Didn't you hear what Jesus just said? Like, how could you be so insensitive? No, this is indignant in the fact that I can't believe you beat us to the punch. I mean, we wanted those thrones next to Jesus for ourselves. But here's what's even more interesting. And again, it shows us Jesus' character, his emotional maturity, the fruit of the Spirit just flowing from him. So instead of getting angry with them all because of their insensitivity and, and their grabbing for power, Jesus called a timeout and he explained a different kind of king and a kingdom. And he said, this is the kind of king and this is the kind of kingdom that you're invited to be a part of and to follow. In fact, what we're gonna read in verse 42, it makes this statement here so clear that Jesus was the king who came to reverse the order of things. Notice verse 42, here it is. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who, regard, who regarded rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. He says, in other words, you know how it works when people have all the power. They most often use their power to benefit themselves. And they see all the people under their authority as though they are there to benefit them, right? It's just this top-down system. And oftentimes, Jesus says, you know what? That encourages the abuse of authority and power. And what we all understand is that top-down kind of authority, it hasn't changed over the last 2,000 years. It often encourages the abuse of authority and power. Well, that's the kind of perspective that Jesus' disciples had about authority and power. In their mind, Jesus is going to be the king who has all the authority and the power. So the closer we can get to that power and that authority, that more of that power we can leverage for ourselves, and the better it's going to be for us in this new kingdom. And this is where Jesus comes along and he turns everything upside down on them. And he says, yeah, Gentiles, they lord their authority over people. That's what's normal. And that's what we see. And that's what we expect. But notice what he says next. But not so with you. In other words, you referring, if you're a follower of me, not so with you. Literally, guys, if you're part of my kingdom, my kingdom is an entirely different way of thinking. In my kingdom, you use whatever influence, power, wealth, authority that you have for a completely different purpose entirely. He's saying, not so with you. You're not going to behave and treat other people like the kings and the leaders of this world do. Instead, notice what he says I want you to do. He says, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be slave of all. And I'm sure the disciples, when they hear this, are most likely thinking, but I thought the whole point of being in charge was so people would serve me and everything would be about me. I mean, I want power so I can get my way and have my way and have my voice and have my influence. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you want to be great in my kingdom, then whatever power, whatever authority or influence that you have, it should be used for the benefit of others, not yourself. Jesus says, listen, in my kingdom, 
You leverage your time and you leverage your money and you leverage your influence for the sake of the people around you. You don't demand people do what you want them to do. You learn to be a servant, not a master. You voluntarily commit your life to be a person dedicated to serving others, not demanding that others serve you. Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, everything is upside down from what you see in the kingdoms of the world. And in Jesus' upside down kingdom, what he's basically saying is this, the higher up you are, the lower you go. The more you have, the more you serve. The more rights you have to be served, the more you should serve. So the question you might be asking is something like this. Why, why would I ever wanna do that? Like, why should I have as my primary motivation and, and ambition to be a servant of other people? Why would that be the goal? And people oftentimes ask, what is the purpose of my life? And Jesus comes along and goes, I can give you the purpose. If you follow me, this is the purpose. And you go, but why would the purpose of my life to be a servant? He answers that in verse 45. Notice this. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, oh, I'm the king. You're right about that. But he's really saying in this passage, he says, I'm the king who came to reverse the order of everything. I, I'm the king who has flipped everything upside down. In my kingdom, the king is not demanding to be served. In my kingdom, the king is the model for those who, how, how people should serve and give who follow him. In, in this world, yeah, it's normal for subjects to serve their king. It's normal for subjects to give their life for their king. But in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, the king serves the subjects. The king gives his life for his subjects. And he's saying, that's the kind of king we're invited to follow. That's the example we're called to emulate. That's the kind of people Jesus' followers should be. We should be the most servant-hearted people on planet Earth. In fact, if we follow Jesus... We should look like, we should act like, we should react like, we should serve, we should give like Jesus because no follower is greater than their king. So here's my thing to you, all of our churches. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's the question I really want you to consider. Would people describe you, if you ask the closest people to you, would they describe you 24-7 as a humble, servant-hearted person? If somebody would ask your spouse, if somebody would ask your children, if someone would ask your parents, if someone would ask your coworkers, if someone would ask your fellow students, is that a humble, servant-hearted person? person, what would they say? Would they say that you use the wealth of your time and your resources and your influence to serve yourself or to serve those around you? And yes, I use the word wealth of your time and your resources because if you're in America, we are so blessed. We, we have a wealth of time and we have a wealth of money. That's why we have no time. 
It's why we don't have time to serve other people. It's because we have a wealth of money and we can go away on the weekends and we can go away for a week and we can go away for two weeks and we can go away for the evening and we eat out more than we eat at an and we can do always be entertaining ourselves because we have a wealth of time and money. We just don't think we have time because we have so much wealth that we don't have any time to serve others. So if you ask somebody, or somebody would say, is that a servant-hearted person? What would they say? And here's what I can tell you. If, it's, if, if they would say, no, it's really all about him, it's really all about her, then you're not following the example or the command of your king. Instead, what you're doing is, is you're following a king of your own making, of your own liking, and you're living in this, dis, this disillusionment that somehow or another believing in Jesus is following Jesus. And you're living this disillusionment that I can live just the opposite of Jesus and say I'm following. And that's, that's not a truth. That's self-deception. Because see, following Jesus, it will never lead you to the land of consumerism. It'll never make you a spectator. It'll never make you self-centered. No, following Jesus, what it does is it leads us across the border to this new kingdom to a life that is so much greater than anything that we could ever ma imagine, to a life of purpose and fulfillment, but it's a life that is beyond you and more focused on others. Now, you know why it's so hard? Do you know why it is so hard to be a servant-hearted leader? Do you know why we say, yes, I want to be that servant. We wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, I want to go out and I want to be the servant-hearted person. I want to be like you. You know why? Because this requires us to confront our egos. It requires us to confront our egos. I have a huge ego that I have just had to surrender and say, God, you got to deal with this. You have egos. We all have egos. And our egos are not easily tamed. Attained. I mean, the gravitational pull of our ego is to focus inward, to focus on myself and demand that other people serve me and be sensitive to me and, and treat me well, respect me. See, our egos are why we struggle with feeling like we deserve others to treat us better than we do. Your, your ego is why you walk out of a restaurant and you're so mad because somebody didn't treat you as though you were royalty. It's why you walk out of the doctor's office and you're so angry and so frustrated. Our egos are why we get angry. It's why you get angry with people when they cut you off in traffic. I mean, after all, don't you know who you just cut off? I mean, come on. See, our egos are why we feel like other people should appreciate us more than what we are appreciated. Our egos are why we react with such emotional trauma when people are not sensitive to our needs and what we're dealing with in our life and we get so emotionally worked up. It's our ego. In fact, you might wanna write this down. Heard an acrostic for ego years ago. Ego is edging God out. The bigger my ego, the less room there is for God. I want you to think about something. The disciples were not sensitive at all to the pain and the torture that Jesus was about to endure. And here's the thing about that. He was about to endure this pain and torture for their sake. It was about them. They weren't sensitive. 
But because he had this humble servant's heart, no ego, we don't see any kind of emotional reaction coming out of Jesus. Instead, when they were insensitive to his needs and what was going on in their life, you know what Jesus did? Jesus lovingly leaned in and he ministered to them at their place of need. Listen, God has a plan and a purpose for many of your lives. But we're never going to experience it until we say, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you as your servant. Because see, Jesus' response Jesus' response in that moment when he responded to them, he didn't react, he responded. He shows us that our emotion-filled reactions to the behavior and actions of other people, they have little to do with what other people do in our lives, but they have everything to do with the size of our ego. I want you to understand that. When you react to someone else, it has little to do with what they did and has everything to do with the size of our ego. Our egos are why we get so frustrated with people. Our egos are why we are so angry. Our egos are why we have conversations in our head and they lock in for days and months. And some of you have been living in conversations in your head with people for years. It's why you're always trying to have those conversations because your ego is, they need to be set straight. They haven't treated me like I deserve to be treated. And your ego is telling you that you deserve to be treated the way you say you're being treated or need to be treated. But that's not the way of our king. So I'm just telling you today, if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus and you wanna become more like Jesus, you have to say, Jesus, I'm here today. I'm choosing to follow you as my king. I need help to have a humble servant's heart. This is why I'm absolutely so grateful for the 600 plus of you who serve on our dream team. If you don't know what our dream team is, that's, that's our volunteer team. Um, the people who show up every Sunday on a regular basis and serve at all of our different churches. Because you know what you've done? By serving others on a weekly basis, you have put a habit in your life that helps you develop a humble servant's heart. You have to put habits in your life to help you do that. Because every Sunday when somebody said, hey, you, you wanna go off for the weekend? Or every Sunday when somebody says, hey, let's go do this on Sunday. Or every Sunday you go, oh man, I got some projects around to do around the house that you know are all about me. Um, and you go, no, I can't do that um, because I've committed to serve others. What that habit of serving reminds you is that life is not about you. It's also why I'm so grateful and appreciative for the many of you um, who give consistently a percentage of your income, weekly, monthly, or quarterly, to help us reach people for Jesus Christ, equip them with a faith that works in real life, and then send them back out in the world to reach more people for Jesus Christ. Because see, here's the thing. Whenever you commit to giving first of your resources that God has blessed you with, with your time, the way you serve people, it's just a reminder that life is not about you and it helps you develop a humble servant's heart. 
And I just want to say, for those of you that don't have the habit or the rhythm of every week, I'm going to carve out a portion of my time to serve others, where it's at our church or some other organization that's helping our communities, or you don't have the habit of consistently taking off the top of your income to give to others, whether it's to this church or some other organization that you believe in, I just want to invite you to explore the opportunity of saying, God, I, I want to have a humble servant's heart. Part of my reaction and my frustration in life is because I have an agenda for you, Jesus, and now I'm coming to you and saying, I, I'm coming on your agenda. I, I want to follow you. So, so my challenge to you is that you develop a plan where you are giving of your time and you're giving of your resources, where you're financially consistently giving of your resources and financially cons and, and, and consistently giving your time. And one of the ways you can do that is if you want to take out your phone on the back of your seats, uh, there is a QR code on the back of your seats. Most of you might not even recognize it when you came in. If you'll just take your phone and scan that, it'll take you to two options. You can say, okay, I'd like to think about this serving thing, or it'll give you an option of how you can like weekly, quarterly, you know, whatever you could give consistently. Now you go, why are you doing that? You just want some for the church? Well, here, now here's what I tell you to discover. If you develop this habit, these are keystone habits in your life. Giving of the first of your time, giving the first of your resources back to God. You'll not only be helping the people of our church and our community by pro providing great age-appropriate environments, but God is going to use you to impact some people's lives. But you want more than that? Your life is most likely the one that's gonna be impacted the most. You know why I say that? And I'm gonna unpack this more in a sermon later on this year, even more to help you understand this. But when you're the one serving, you get impacted more because you see the miracles. Most of us know the story of Jesus turning water into wine. It's often people's favorite story because they say, well, Jesus did wine, so guess what? But anyhow, so the deal is, but you know the story of Jesus turning water into wine, right? So he does that at the end of the party and everybody goes, man, that was the best wine. So the story of the people at the party were this when they went to work the next day. You know what the story was? Oh my gosh, they saved the best, water to, they saved the best wine to last. That, that's just unusual. That was their story. But you know what the disciples, the people who were following Jesus that went and got the pots and went and filled them up with water and then they carried those water pots out full of wine, they had the story. Listen, until you begin to develop the habit of giving God the first part of your time and the first part of your resources, you're never going to have the story of the miracles. If you just show up on Sunday and you sit in a seat and you consume and you complain because people aren't serving you well, oh, I didn't like the music, I didn't like the singer, I didn't like the sermon, I didn't like this, I didn't like that, I didn't like the color of the carpet, I didn't like this, I'm telling you, you're never going to see a miracle. It's the people back carrying the pots. And many of you are experiencing that, aren't you? You're experiencing that. You're experiencing that because every Sunday you show up and you carry the pot and you fill it with water and you watch Jesus turn it into wine as you're serving the children in preschool. You, you watch Jesus do that, the miracles in, in, in elementary. You watch the miracles happen for those of you that serve in student ministry. You watch the miracles happen for those of you who lead the small groups during the week for our adults. I mean, you watch the miracles happen for those of you that serve on other teams and you get to be the one telling the story. Because here's what will happen. Whenever you take a step to follow your leader and king, you're gonna become more like your leader. 
And you're gonna get to see behind the scenes what your leader and king is doing. Listen, Jesus is the king who came to serve and to give his life for others. That's why often you hear me saying, hey, the longer you come to RCC, the farther away you should park away from the front door. You should walk farther and farther away if you're physically capable of that. Some of you are physically capable. You just don't want to admit it. You should park farther and farther away so that other people can park closer. And you, when you come in the auditoriums, you should sit toward the center of the rows and closer to the front so other people who are coming in later don't have to climb over you. See, that's what Jesus would do. Now we just quit preaching and started meddling, right? So here's my question to you. Why would you not use what God has blessed you with for the sake of others? I mean, because obviously that's what Jesus did for us. And that's what he commanded us to do. That's what it means to follow. And Jesus said, hey, and by the way, the path to greatness is upside down from what the world says. He says, the path to greatness and the purpose for your life in my kingdom is that you say, God, I want to humbly serve. That's the path to greatness. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you so much for the model that we all have of what it means to follow our leader and our King Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for so clearly, clearly showing us what that looks like. I thank you for the reminder that following you, it never leads us to be a, a spectator or a consumer. Following you leads us to be a participator, but not a participator so we can rise to the top and have the power and have a voice and, and have people admire us and have people respect us and have people appreciate us. No, no, no. It's so that we can stoop the lowest and serve as you served us so that we can use our time and our resources to bless others as you've blessed us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll come right now and just help each one of us to know that and this is hard, but you will empower us to live this out. I ask you to forgive us for edging you out of our lives because of our ego and then blaming everybody else for not serving us well or being sensitive to us or appreciating us. When in reality, when we're filled up with our ego, there's nothing anybody could ever do that would be enough. So God, forgive us for our prideful self and may we pick up the towel every day of this week and take the basin and help us to serve just as you served us. God, help people to know that we are followers of you because of the way we serve. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey everyone, have a great week. See you next Sunday as we're in part four. Can't wait to share it with you. See you next week.